Staying warm outside or what? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. It's chilly, isn't it? Well, my name's Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and I'm so thankful that you're with us today. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to turn there or find it on your device, you can uh, write that down. If you uh, want to look it up with us here in a little bit, and we'll have it on the screens for you as well, of course. Um, But before I get into it, I just want to remind you, as Pastor Michael said, that we have 21 days of prayer going on right now. 21 days of prayer and fasting. I hope you've been able to participate in that with us as a church because we really need to start the year off every year by asking God to move. Because if God doesn't move, then nothing's going to be worth anything that we try to do. You know, God's the one that does the miracle. We, we have to prepare the jars, and that's what prayer begins to do is prepare those jars. But God's the one that provides the oil, as we might say from 2 Kings So I hope that you guys are praying with us. It's uh, really important that we do that together. It's not too late to start if you haven't been doing it. Jump into it this week. This is our last week of doing it together. So make sure that you're praying with us as a church. Very important. But today we're continuing our vision series for 2024. And we're talking about our four core values as a church. We stay centered on the gospel. We demonstrate hospitality to the culture. We build authentic community with one another among believers. And we mobilize leaders to multiply disciples and to stay centered on the gospel We talked about keeping our eyes on eternity a few weeks ago, if you remember that. We were in the first half of 1 Peter chapter 1. And then last week, we went into chapters 2 and 3 about hospitality and talking about inviting people to belong to Jesus with us. We were in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3, but I do want to let you know I made a mistake last week when I gave the information to our production team. Um, I wrote down 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 17 when in fact it was 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, okay? So the successive verses got me on that, and I wrote it down wrong. Nobody seemed to catch it, though. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not sure. You guys didn't, nobody, nobody let me know. I caught it this week myself. Uh, maybe you guys just saw it and showed me grace. I don't know. That's, that, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You guys, you guys caught it, but I'm sure you just showed me grace in that. I wanted to point that out. So I always tell you to go to the Bible yourself, because I would never do it maliciously, but I might make a mistake like that, you know? And so I hope you guys are always reading the Bible and figuring it out on your own. But I did double and triple check this week, and the address that I gave you for this text this week is correct. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. That is, that is the right place. Uh, so we want to talk about building authentic community today from the text. And we use the word authentic here at our church to describe community because we want to be real with each other. That's what authentic means, right? Authentic is being about true, what's true and what's real. If, something, if something's authentic, then it's original. It's, it's the real deal. You know, it's the real McCoy, as they would say. It's not fake, it's real. So that means that when you come into our community, we don't want to be putting a mask on with one another. We don't want to try to make ourselves look better than we really are. We don't want to try to be somebody that we're not. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We really mean that. And when somebody's not authentic, they're not honest about who they are, it's pretty easy to spot if we can all just be honest about that. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not hard to see. Have you guys ever heard of the uncanny valley effect? Anybody ever heard of this, the uncanny valley it's, it's actually a TikTok trend right now, apparently. I'm not on TikTok, but I heard about this from the youngins, okay? It's on the TikTok, whatever that is. People are dressing up like these robotic things so that they can kind of look human, but they're not really human. The uncanny valley effect is this. I'll, I'll share it with you. I've got a picture of a graph here that shows you this on a plot map. It's the less human-like something is, 
the more accepting of it we are. And then as the plot line goes up, you know, and something becomes more and more human, there's all of a sudden this point in the plot line where we don't accept it any longer. And it takes a huge dip because it's like freaking us out a little bit. Because it's, it's like trying to be human, but it's not quite human. And we can tell. And so we accept it all the way up until a certain point, and then there's this huge dip in the graph. That's the uncanny valley. And then, and then as something becomes human or looks human, then we start to accept it again. And that, that, then it shoots back up to acceptance. You can see that on the, on the graph curve there. So it's, it's this idea that when something is just a little off, it's trying to be human, but it's not, we can tell. So like a robotic arm, for example. That's not human. It's a robotic arm. It's doing its thing. We accept that. There's acceptance of it. You can see it on the plot graph. But humanoid robots with a synthetic rubber skin on them that look human, but they're really off, you know, they freak us out. That's the point. And because it's trying to be human, but it's not. And we can tell. It just, it, it's a little, it unsettles us a little bit. Something's not quite right there. So the closer something is, but isn't human, it just, it just gives us this eerie, weird feeling. Like, we don't accept that. We don't like it. Well, that's exactly what community is like with other believers. If it's not authentic and real, something's off a little bit. We can tell. And it just unsettles us a little bit. If we're not being real with one another, when we're trying to do life with one another and be in community together, and we're not showing genuine, authentic love and care, it's very apparent, and it just unsettles us. You know, we can accept, like, you know, normal relationships at work, and we can accept all these relationships that are maybe a little bit surface level until a certain point. And then if it's just too fake, and it doesn't feel real, then there's, a, there's this huge dip in the, in the graph. We don't, we don't accept it until finally we get up to the point where we know it's authentic. We know somebody really cares for us. We know somebody really loves us. We're going to be in that kind of relationship. So that's what community is like among believers, we can spot inauthenticity a mile away. There's no doubt that's why so many people claim to have church hurt if they grew up in church or they've been around church for a long time because if it feels fake and you know something's off, then you don't trust those people. You just automatically start to distance yourself because it feel, it's unsettling. And so that's where church hurt often comes from. But listen, I don't want to minimize church hurt at all. I don't want to discount people's sins against those who have been hurt. I've been hurt in church. I have church hurt. I've been hurt by church people, church leaders even, in my life. So I understand church hurt. But what I want to say is that we, we often forget in those moments that we're a part of building the community as well. You know, community goes both ways, right? So if it's inauthentic on one side, then it might be inauthentic on the other. Because usually, if we get a bunch of broken people together, like us, not only are we going to get hurt, we might also hurt others ourselves, right? And so we have to recognize that church hurt goes both ways in some sense. Whenever there's broken and sinful people, hurt will happen. But, but, but at the same time, then, it just feels like in the church, this should be the place that we don't get hurt, right? Like, we, we kind of have this in the back of our minds. We're like, well, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way because we know at work we, we're expecting to get hurt by people, we know even in our families we expect to get hurt by people. We expect that in other spheres of life. But we're looking at the church and we're like, just, it shouldn't be that way. We, we shouldn't get hurt in church. And in some sense, that's right. Because loving others, especially each other in the church, is 
probably the primary defining mark that the Bible tells us of being a Christian, learning to love other Christians. But in another very real sense, it's a wrong way to think because nobody's going to be perfect, not even Christians. We have to show one another grace in this. And so the key, no matter what, is to love people through the hurt. That's authentic. That's real. That's true love. It's to forgive. It's to show grace. It's to show gentleness and reverence. Like we discussed last week, for the culture and hospitality, but now with the church. So to put it succinctly, it's learning to love the church like Jesus loves us. And that's going to be our main point for today, actually. If you're taking notes and you want to write that down, we need to learn to love the church like Jesus loves us. So love the church like Jesus loves you. That's authentic community. That, that's the thing that doesn't unsettle us, it settles us. It doesn't give us, give us a restlessness, it gives us rest. When we know somebody really accepts us, no matter what, no matter how broken we are, no matter how we've hurt them, and they say, no, I still love you, that's authentic community. That's how Jesus loves us. He loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. At least that's how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. That's the kind of love that he has for us, which means he's forgiven us. He shows us grace. He's treating us gently and with reverence all the time. And now because we belong to him and we've experienced his love, that overflows into how we love one another Last week with hospitality, that's mainly a discussion on how to love and interact with non-Christians in our culture. This week, once we're in the church and we're following Jesus together, we're learning to love one another like he loves us. And that's, like I said, the primary mark of being a believer, really. And Jesus is going to say that. And we'll see that in our text today as well. So let's get into 1 Peter chapter 1 again. This time we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to learn what Peter wrote to the New Testament believers here on loving one another. This is what he says in verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who calls you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, we've talked about this a little bit already in previous weeks, but I think it's worth bringing up again. You can write this down. Behavior follows belonging. Behavior follows belonging. That's the point that he's making here. Your conduct matters. Your behavior matters. And we said something similar last week, but Peter mentions it multiple times throughout this short little letter. So if Peter repeats himself, then we need to repeat ourselves in it, right? Maybe we need to get something about our conduct that needs to change here. He says to be holy in all your conduct in light of when Jesus is returning. In the fact, in light of eternity, eyes on eternity, we know the end is going to be near at some level, so to speak, then we need to be ready to do right. We need to be ready for action, he says here. Be ready to live eternity out now, today, through your behavior and your conduct. Be holy and being holy means we're set apart, as we said last week, specifically for God and his purposes in the world. He has declared us holy, and he's making us more and more holy. So it's both a declaration and it's a process. So there are two things to be clear on in that then. The first is that it's a declaration. We don't set ourselves apart from God, from, from other people. God does that for us. Remember last week, he chose us. God chooses to declare whether or not we're going to be holy or not. We need that rebirth 
that we can't do on our own. Remember, we talked about this last week. Birth is something that we can't affect in ourselves. God has to do that for us. It's out of his love for us that we are born, reborn into this new life with an imperishable inheritance, if you'll recall that language. It's given to us, you know? It's not something we can do on ourselves. So he declares us holy. But then once he declares us holy, the second thing to be clear about here is that he expects us to act like it. It's a process that he is doing in our lives over and over and over again, all for the rest of our life. So to be clear about that, that means that he makes us more and more holy every day. He makes us more and more like Jesus, and we have to choose to walk in that every day. We have to choose to participate in that with him. So holiness in our conduct is an important marker for that. So Peter's saying in light of Jesus returning, in light of the fact that he's declared you holy, in light of the fact that he's working this holiness in you, it's time to take action now and be holy in your conduct. There's an urgency about what he's saying. There's an urgency about how to live because our behavior can impact the eternity of others, as we talked about last week. But let's not get the order wrong here, and that's kind of the point that I want to make real quick, is that our behavior doesn't precede our belonging. In other words, God doesn't want us to behave a certain way before we can belong. That's not what makes us holy. Our behavior doesn't make us holy. We are holy, and so we behave a certain way. So we belong then we behave a certain way. He brings us in. He brings us into the family, makes us belong to Jesus, and that's what leads to the behavior change in our lives. So in light of the coming eternity, eyes on eternity, we will behave differently over time. Behavior follows belonging. Let's not get the order wrong. There's more we could say there, but the crux of the issue is that holiness isn't about self-righteousness. It's actually about self-sacrifice, and that's how he goes on to describe it here in verse 18. He says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So let's talk about holiness a little bit more here then. Because Peter starts with a problem first in verse 18. He says, the problem is we live an empty life apart from Jesus. So we were unholy before he made us holy. That's, that's the problem. He says it's an empty life. Peter's constantly contrasting our old way of living with a new way of living in Christ. And he's saying that it was empty. It means we need to remember this. It's good for us never to forget where we've come from, like Peter is reminding us here. So if you're a believer, do you remember how empty it was before you met Jesus? Do you remember what life was like for you? I mean, I know I remember that. I remember feeling empty before I submitted my life to Jesus because I was chasing after my own dreams and my own desires. I was restless, as we say here. So I was trying to chase after perishable things, empty things, to fill that void that I had in my life. And if I go back to feeling empty right now in my life, it's always because I'm trying to put my hope in things that are perishable again and that are, that are empty, and then I have to come back out of that and repent and ask God to help remind me that I've come out of that life, I've been declared holy by him, I can live a different way. That, that kind of emptiness, it's just like trying to climb to the top of a mountain thinking that we're going to make it to the top on our own, only to realize that when you get to what you thought was going to fulfill you and make you happy, it was only a false summit. It wasn't really the place that you wanted to be. There's, there's not the fulfillment that you were hoping for in those moments. 
Peter puts his finger right on it. He says that's an empty way to live. It's just totally empty. I love using Beckett Cook's example of this because if you haven't read his story, uh, Change of Affection, highly recommend the book to you. He was as successful as you can be in, in our American culture. He was a Hollywood production designer, made a name for himself with all the Hollywood elites and producers, won a ton of awards for what he was doing in Hollywood. He traveled the world, knew all the right people, enjoyed uh, sexual freedom, so he thought. He was a gay man, lived his, out the gay lifestyle. So he'd won all these awards, gotten success in his craft, had relationships with all these people that he thought made him important, lived really the high life in every sense of the word, but he kept having this gnawing feeling in his life that it was empty. He just kept feeling, he said, behind the scenes, behind all the success, he just kept feeling empty. And so he's meeting with one of his friends in a coffee shop one day in California, and he said that uh, they were talking and they overheard this Bible study going on just a few tables over from him, and uh, he said they started to kind of make fun of it, you know, because they, both of them had some kind of church in their past, and they thought of how stupid it was and how silly it was. And so his friend started goading him and said, hey, you ought to go talk to the, to the guy over there and just kind of, you know, pick him apart a little bit because you're very well educated. You know what to say. You ought to go do that. And so Becca was like, all right, I will. So after the Bible study concluded and the leader was left there by himself, Beckett said he went over to the leader and started to give him a hard time a little bit. Started to ask him hard questions and started to poke at him. And he said the leader, though, was just so gentle and so kind and, he, and his responses made a lot of sense to Beckett. And, and finally, the guy invited him to come to church on Sunday, just a couple of days away. And Beckett said that he, at first, was like, scoffing. Of course I'm not going to do that. And then the more he thought about it over the next couple of days, he was like, I think I'm going to go to that church. And he said he didn't even realize why he did it, other than it might be a supernatural miracle in his heart. He said he found himself driving to the church on Sunday for no other apparent reason than this guy just invited him. And he's just like something's not right in my, my heart, so I'm gonna, I guess I'm just going to go and check it out. He said when he got there and the guy got up on stage who was preaching, it was, it was the same guy that he'd talked to in the coffee shop, and that guy almost directly spoke to him and shared his own story about having same-sex attraction. And then he shared the gospel with his entire church of like a thousand people, or however many there were there. And Beckett said that he heard the gospel for the very first time that day, and he got saved on the spot, just immediately put his faith in it. He said he knew he was living an empty life, and when he heard the gospel message about Jesus, it filled his heart up in a way that he never knew that he needed. That's what he was looking for. That's what he wanted in his life. He wanted to know and be known by the God of the universe. That's a powerful story, but guys, we could have stories like that. I, I, I can imagine that your story might be similar in some way. We could see that happen right here in Roanoke. Because we're all trying to find that one thing that's going to satisfy us and give us purpose in this life and we all set our sights so low that we think money or success or comfort, the right house, the right car, the right look, all of those things, we think that they're going to be the things that give us fulfillment. But they're all perishable things, Peter says. And those perishable things will die one day. Either we'll die or they'll die. One of the two or both. See, the empty life is a self-centered life. And you can write that down as well. Because really what you're doing is you're just focusing on yourself. I know that feeling. We just focus on our own selves. We're so centered on ourselves, we can't love others the way that we ought to. We can't love God the way that we ought to. We end up alienating ourselves from both God and other people because we're living this empty lifestyle trying to fill it up. 
but it's so self-centered. I guarantee that each one of us is intuitively realizing that we ought to love others every single day. We all know that we ought to show compassion and love and kindness to people around us. But because of our self-centered nature and chasing after this empty life, we know that we can't. At least not consistently. Maybe we can show glimpses of it once in a while. if We really try. But we know consistently we don't love well. I know I've felt that personally. I've shared this with our church before, but you guys know I struggle to care for people and love people that I don't know very well. I just struggle to show empathy with those folks. And it's because I'm selfish. I have self-centeredness in my heart. and I need Jesus to constantly show me what it looks like to love sacrificially the way that he loves. Because, see, the empty life is self-centered, but the fulfilled life is a Jesus-centered life. The fulfilled life is a Jesus-centered life. The Bible tells us that what we're actually looking for is something imperishable, something that will never die and never fade away, and it's love from God himself. And he's offered that to us in Jesus. When we put our faith and hope in Jesus, he will redeem us through something imperishable, the blood of his own son. No, no perishable earthly thing can give us that fulfillment or joy that we're looking for and longing for in our lives. Only Jesus' love can do that for us. That's what Beckett found out when he first heard the gospel. And his love for us is sacrificial in nature. That's what Jesus has done. And that's what true holiness looks like. See, that's what he's called into us, into our lives. To be holy in conduct means to be holy like him, right? It says, be holy as I am holy. What's holiness look like? He's set apart to die. Set apart for sacrifice. That's what holiness is here that Peter's talking about. So you can write this down. Jesus' love for us is sacrificial. Jesus' love for us is sacrificial. He's giving of himself. That's true holiness in a very real sense. Because of the nature of God, he does love us for his own glory. No doubt about that. Everything that God does is for his own glory. Ultimately, the end of everything for him is his own glory. He's God. He deserves that. But in another very real sense, the Bible teaches us that God loves us for our own sake. He values us so much. He didn't have to create us. He didn't have to come into the world and live for us and die for us. He could have destroyed us because of our sin against him, because of rejecting the God of the universe. We didn't weren't for his own glory. We weren't for his glory. He's for his glory. We weren't. He could have destroyed us. Yet, because he loves us, he sent Jesus into the world while we were still sinners. He sent Jesus to love us sacrificially. That's the gospel that we talk about all the time. I mean, you talk about church hurt. We hurt Jesus more than anything by rejecting him. Oftentimes we choose to follow our own ways still. We choose to reject him every day sometimes, just in our own everyday lives. Choose to follow our own authority rather than following his authority. And yet, true holiness, sacrifice on our behalf. He doesn't just love us in word only. He loves us with his conduct. Indeed, and he sacrificed his life for our sins on the cross. See, Jesus lived this perfectly holy life, loving others the way that we should love them, but we won't and don't. Loving God the way that we should, but won't and don't. And then he died the death that we deserve for that. He took our place on the cross. See, we don't deserve the kind of love that he's shown us. We've alienated ourselves from both God and others. Yet Jesus' sacrifice paid for our eternity so that we could live with him forever and be with him. That's true love. I know we might not fully understand the idea of sacrifice, but when Peter mentions the spotless lamb here, that's again that Old Testament language that we've talked about over the last two weeks. He's saying that Jesus exchanged his life for our life. 
He exchanged his perfect life for our imperfect life. So now his blood covers that imperfection. His blood covers the sin that we perpetrate against God. So when God looks at us now, he sees Jesus' perfection in our place. That is the beauty of the gospel that we believe. It's so hard to believe. Sometimes it's almost too good to be true in our minds. We're like, nah, but he's got to be upset with us. He's got to not love us. He's perfectly holy for you and for me. He loves us that much. That's what true holiness and true love looks like. So now, even though we struggle to love others well, we struggle to live perfectly, you know, holy lives in our conduct, when God looks at us, he sees his perfectly holy son in our place. And when we believe that over and over and over again, when we go back to that and run back to that truth, that's what changes our behavior over time. The incredible thing is when we believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's what happens. We put our faith and hope in God. When we see the gospel, he says here in verse 21, we put our faith and hope in God over and over and over again. And when we do that, we can begin to love others the way that he's loved us because his love changes us. We can live that holy life now that he's calling us to if we look to his holiness first. We've got to get that order right. That's why love is the defining mark of a Christian in this world. Love for one another. Peter has a little more to say on that, so let's finish out our text here in verse 22. He says, this is what that, that love, that holy love, this is what it looks like, verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so since we've now believed the gospel and we believe Jesus' love for us, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. The word of the Lord is the good news about Jesus' love for us. He's saying because of Jesus' love, we're to love each other. Love the church like Jesus loves us. That's what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us to love one another the way Jesus has loved us in this holy and perfect and sacrificial kind of way. So let's spend the end of our time just breaking down verse 22 here when he talks about loving others. First, Peter says, purify yourselves by obedience to the truth. We've purified ourselves by obedience to the gospel. What's, what's he mean here? Well, this is the true holiness that he's talking about. We're not just set apart so that we can be considered better than other people in the world. How many Christians do we know that think that just because they're Christians, just because they go to church, they must be better now than everybody else in the world? No, that's not what he's saying here. If we think that's what holiness is, that's pride, friend. That's not love. We don't understand the gospel fully then because holiness is a response to the gospel. So you can write that down as well. Holiness is a response to the gospel. That's what it is has to come out of a place of sincere love for Jesus because he's first loved us, and then others come after that. We can love others out of Jesus' love. It's not a self-righteousness, self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, that's the kind of love that he's calling us to. That's obedience to the truth that he means here. So yeah, actively put your former desires to death so that we won't be conformed to them any longer. We need to do that. Those old desires are selfish. They're empty. We're rejecting God's ways. Get rid of those, but do it out of love, 
not out of self-righteousness. So Peter says then, too, here, show sincere brotherly love. That's the authentic love that we talk about here. He's saying, show the love now. This is what holiness looks like. Maybe you remember what Jesus said to his followers about love and loving one another. In John 13, he said, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So first of all, when he says that, why does he say it's a new command? Well, we've, we've actually gone over this before this year. It's because the Levitical law was to love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. If you look that up, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule. We all think that that's what Jesus teaches. Well, that's not what Jesus teaches. He doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love each other as I love you. That's why it's a new command. It's a new command because he's saying, the way that I love you sacrificially, you are to now lay down your lives and love one another in that same way. It's way harder, in some sense, than the Levitical law. I mean, just think about how Jesus has loved you personally. How was Jesus to you in your life when he saved you? Was he judgmental and angry toward you? Is that what brought you into the faith because you were afraid? Because he was judgmental and angry? Or was he tender? Was he gentle? Was he forgiving? Was he patient with you? Has he beat you down with the truth or has he built you up with his truth? See, we're to love one another like that. Jesus' love for us informs our love for each other. And then he says, everyone will know that we belong to him if we truly love one another like this. And so loving the church is the mark of a Christian. Loving the church is the mark of a Christian. How many Christians do you know that hate the church today? And maybe you've felt a little of that yourself every once in a while, <clears throat> right? Maybe you've felt that way some. You're like, man, I hate Christians. They're the worst sometimes. My, my, my wife and I joke about that all the time, unfortunately, because that's what it feels like a lot of times, right? Ah, Christians are just the worst sometimes. See, I know you might have church hurt. Like I said, I do too. But if we don't love each other the way that Jesus loves us, then we probably don't belong to him. And that should be sobering. That's what Peter says here. That's why he says be sober-minded. We don't love other believers the way that Jesus loves us and the way that Jesus loves other believers. Then we're probably not a Christian because that's what he says is the mark here. Just talked to another pastor this week of a small church here in Roanoke. He said that he had three families leave this past fall because of their lack of love for one another. They actually got into a tiff relationally with one another, and they ended up leaving not only the church. He said two of them just don't go to church now. He said he's pretty sure they've left the faith. And my, my thing would be, well, maybe they weren't Christians to begin with because all three of them had been Christians all their life. They've been Christians. They've been in church all their lives. And then all of a sudden, this relational thing just breaks them. And I, you know, I just, going off of what he said, it wasn't that big of a deal in my mind. What, what, he, what he told me, they, they were upset about with each other. And yet two of them don't go to church anymore, may not even be Christians now. I mean, that, that's, that's what he's saying we need to guard against here. That's why he's saying put away all that malicious behavior that we talked about last week, all of these kinds of things. If we don't love the church, we can't lean in with one another in love, then of course we, we can't love Jesus because Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church, right? Those kinds of stories to me, like that church, th this pastor, it's sobering. It makes me wake up a little bit and say, man, I need to take seriously what it looks like to love you all. And I hope you're taking seriously what it looks like to love me because your love, or really lack thereof, for other believers in the church really shows where your heart's at with Jesus. 
Jesus takes whether or not you love his church very seriously. That's why Peter's talking about holy conduct here. Uh, He says, be sober-minded, be clear-headed. God takes this seriously. You take it seriously. I mean, you think about it this way. Would you ever be friends with somebody who hates your spouse if you're married? I mean, I would find this hard to believe because I think my wife's, you know, like Mary Poppins. She's nearly perfect in every way. Um, I'm trying to make up for what I said a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) Uh, Let's just hypothetically think this way for a second. Let's just hypothetically think that somebody doesn't like Tamara. And, and, and they hate being around her. They think she's terrible. She's annoying. They don't like her at all. And just now, imagine they start saying that to me. Tell me that they don't like my wife. Tell me that they think that she's stupid or whatever. And they say ugly things about her in front of me. Do you think that I'm just going to stand there and let it happen? We're going to have some words, right? Might even come to fisticuffs. I'm not sure. It depends on the situation, right? Like, I would never entertain that. Of course, somebody can't be at odds with her and be, you know, be okay with me. They're gonna be, we're going to be at odds because they're, okay. they're at odds with the person that I love the most, the person who I see as part of myself. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus feels the exact same way about you and me if we're in the church. He feels that way about his bride, his people. So if we can't love the church as broken as it is, then we can't love him. It's impossible. It's impossible to be in a relationship with him and not be in a relationship with his people. He's so connected to the church that he calls us his family. He even calls us his own body. I mean, when Paul persecuted the church as a Pharisee, when he was Saul, you remember this, Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus. What's he say to Saul at that time? What's he say? Does he say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my church? No, what's he say? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies himself with the church so deeply So should we, if Jesus does. We're to love the church like Jesus loves us. That's authentic brotherly love. That's the mark of a believer. But finally, Peter says here in verse 22, to love one another constantly. That's what this holiness outworking looks like. We we work out that holiness now. And it's to love one another constantly. This is perhaps the hardest part of loving the church, right? Because we're in a period of American history where it's really easy to just ghost somebody. We have language for this now. It's called quiet quitting, ghosting people, right? You just leave. You don't say anything. You can do that on social media as well. You just quietly block somebody, whatever it is. It's part of our culture now. But there's also a term for people who grew up as a Christian and then don't go to church anymore. We live in a period of time, what missiologists are calling the great de-churching. So there's now a term for this. It's de-churching, de-churched people, post-Christianity, all these terms, It's probably because of the hurt and lack of love that we've maybe felt over the years. People are leaving the American church in droves. And I have to say American because it's not happening like this in Africa. certainly not happening in China. It's not happening in Korea. It's not happening in places like that. It's happening here. It's no different in our city. I tell this to our starting point all the time. But, you know, over a 10-year period of time, between 2000 and 2010, there was almost a 40% drop in evangelical Christians here in Roanoke City. That's a huge amount of people over a 10-year period of time, 40%. And that's only up to 2010. You can imagine what it's probably like now. You can only imagine if that trend has continued on. That means there's probably less than 10,000 Christians in our city, people who call themselves Jesus followers and are evangelical about their faith, which means they are serious about living on mission for Jesus here. I'm sure it's less than 10,000 people in our city. That's huge. See, in our church, we're going to try to love one another constantly. Not, not try to leave one another, but love one another. 
you know, there's maybe various reasons for why that drop happened in our city. I'm not sure. It could have been people died out. Could have been people moved and, and left the city. Whatever the case is, it doesn't matter. We're going to be constant in loving one another while we're here. Some of you guys might even move away. I, but I hope that you're starting to learn that if you move away, we want to send you out on mission wherever you go. So I hope that you'll start to think about that. That'll be next week as we talk about mobilization. But while you're here, we want to love one another constantly through good times, through bad times. We're not just going to ghost one another. We're not just going to not talk about things. That's not authentic. It's not authentic community. And just imagine what the culture is going to see when they look in at us and they see the love that we have for one another. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says that to his disciples. Just imagine what the city of Roanoke is going to see when they look in and see people who are from different backgrounds who would naturally be opposed to one another in political things or cultural things or whatever it might be, and yet we love one another constantly. Man, what a testimony. What, a, what an illustration. What a picture of this holy love that Jesus has shown to us. You know, I, I'm an only child, so I only get to experience uh, you know, loving brothers and sisters in the church now. Uh, but my children, I get to watch them grow up and love one another and, and fight with one another. <laughs> you know, it gets pretty dicey sometimes. But I remember uh, seeing my son Bo um, act ugly to Guinevere, you know, his older sister, one time, probably just a few months ago. I don't remember when it was now. I think it was in the summertime. And as little brothers tend to do, he was being a, kind of a jerk to her, being ugly to her. And so I said something to him. I said, hey, man, you need to stop that. Don't you love your sister? And he looked back at me as straight face, as serious as he possibly could. And he said, oh, yeah, I love Guinevere with all my heart. I was like, okay, man, hey, that's super sweet, bro. I appreciate it. That's, that's really awesome. I love that. So, so act like it, right? Act like it. What a sweet little guy. He loves her with all his heart, even though they're at, at odds with one another for the time being. But he loves her. It's constant. That taught me something about what it looks like to love the church, I think. I thought, man, I need to love people like that too. Because she was annoying him, he was annoying her. Who has started it? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's one of those things. I look in at that kind of love and I'm like, man, that teaches me how I ought to love you all. You're annoying me, I'm annoying you. I, I don't know. You know, it doesn't really matter. But I need to love you constantly. You need to love me constantly. It's just one of those, that's what it looks like to love one another constantly in this holy and perfect way in our conduct. So what I want to call us to do today by way of a big application step is I want you guys to join a community or DNA group today before you leave. And I know most of you guys in here, I know that most of you all are bought into to our church and that you're planning on doing that anyway, but we have regroup going on right now. And so loving sacrificially is learning to die to yourself and step into life with one another. Learn to risk a little bit relationally. Learn to put yourself out there a little bit. Learn to make yourself uncomfortable. Learn to be intentional with your time so that you're around others so that you can love them constantly. I mean, I think sometimes even in our church, as, a good, as good of a community as we have, it's easy to fall back into that empty way of thinking that Peter mentions here. And then we'll alienate ourselves from one another because we just, you know, some lame excuse that we tend to give, whatever reason that is. Now, I want to say to you guys, your group needs you. When you don't show up, you're not thinking about how that's impacting others. You're just thinking about yourself. Remember, the empty life is a selfish life. But they need you as much as you need them. I know you might not believe that. But that's how God set it up. So here's the last thing I want you to write down today. Church is not for you. It is you. You've got to stop thinking about church as some entity out here 
that you can dip into and then dip out of whenever you want. Church is you. It's not just for you. It is you. You are the church. So be constant in being around other members of the church. You can't be constant in loving if you're not constantly around each other, right? We set it up this way with our groups so that you can be intentionally around other believers. I can't tell you how many times I personally have thought about not wanting to go to community group. I'm just being, I'm confessing right now. Not because of the group, but because of me, okay? Let me just make sure that's clear. So many times I'm like, man, I'm just so tired tonight. I'm so overwhelmed today. I've had such a bad week. I just don't feel like going and trying to be nice and trying to love other people and all that kind of stuff. And yet, every time when I make myself go, which I have to because I'm the leader, right? So I have to go. Every time I make myself go, and I'm like, I'm just going to push through and do it anyway. Every single time, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. Every single time, I'm so uplifted. I'm so glad that I went. It was so worth it, right? It's because I needed people's love. They needed my love. And so that exchange, that relationship, that community, that authentic community really ministers to our hearts, changes our lives. Just so happens that we have the regroup going on, so I hope that you guys will do that before you leave. We'll be starting groups, like Michael said, not this week, but next week, the last week of January, heading into the first part of February. And so I hope you'll do that. Sign up for a community group, DNA group. You know, community groups here, if you're new and you don't know this, community groups are just groups of 12 to 15-ish people that meet in homes throughout the week and talk about the sermon text for that week so that you can do life with one another. So you can be in community together, study the Bible together. So community groups are really important, but then DNA groups go even deeper than that. They're two to four people, same gender, sort of similar life stage, depending on how many people we have in our DNA groups who are signed up for that. But that's how we hold one another accountable in those DNA groups. So we're sharing what struggles we have, what things that we are working on. We know God's working on in our lives. We pray for one another in that. So we can change and be transformed by the gospel. We're speaking the gospel over one another. So community groups are important. DNA groups are important. We want to make sure that we do that and lean in. And as hard and as scary as it might be to get to know others and be known by others, I promise you it's always worth it. But don't take my word for it. What I want to do is show you this DNA groups video that we shot last fall and we've shown to our church before. This might be good for you if you're new, though, because I want you to see this and then... I'm going to come back up and lead us in responding together today. So why don't you watch this video? Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.